Todd, what's going on, my friend? Thanks for coming on. Everything's good, Mike. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you reaching out. Two New York guys, what are we doing not having this in a bar? I have a private bar, Jack Dempsey's, that lets me broadcast from there, yet we're doing this over the phone like we're strangers. <laughs> well, these are unusual times, and I look forward to the next time I can uh, take you up on that. It's been a while for me personally, and uh, it's one of life's small pleasures that you know we look back to, back to, uh, back to normal soon. Where'd you grow up in New York? So I was born in Manhattan. Uh, and I grew up in Yonkers, just north of the city. I was going to say, I know you live a little north of the city now. You went to school down here, though. When you're coming back down to the old haunts, obviously so much has changed. What do you miss the most from old New York? Oh, how far are we going back, Mike? <laughs> you're a young guy, Todd. Come on. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's the story of anyone who ever spent any time of their life in New York. You know, uh, so here uh, I'll run through a couple of things. I mean, I'm old enough you know, here in my late 50s now, to uh, to remember, I'll give you a perfect example. My father's family owned a, a garage, a parking garage in Greenwich Village in, in you know, it started out as a stable in the 1890s. Oh but I remember working down there, uh, you know, first summer jobs as a, as a teenager. I just remember wandering around that part of New York before there were chain stores, before, uh, you know, before there, there was, you know, West Bleecker Street was all vacant storefronts. So, like, just a my favorite pieces of New York. Uh, it's not that they're all gone necessarily, but I got to look hard for them. And I think a place is like the Old Town Bar on 18th Street, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a pl- it's a place I've been going to since, you know, since I was in college. And that's a while ago. But uh, listen, you know, New York is about people. It's about places, too, and... You know, I, I miss it these days. What food just isn't the same up there? Up there, you miss what food do you miss the most? Oh, I mean, you know, you could pretty much get get whatever you want where I live now. Mm-hmm. But there are certain New York meals that, especially for over the last year, I have been like, I'll find myself dreaming of, and they don't have to be, you know, uh, amazingly wonderful or anything. But I think about, you know, uh, I think about a pizza and a, a whole pie and a beer at, at John's on Bleecker Street. <laughs> I think about sitting at the bar at Gallagher's, you know, uh, nursing a, a gin and tonic and uh, maybe tucking into a nice steak. You know, it's it's things like that that keep me going. <laughs> so you're a real New Yorker. How surreal is it? You grew up in the city. And then ending up designing the Brooklyn Cyclones logo. Isn't that a wild, like, transformation? Does it ever, like, you ever pinch yourself, like, I grew up here and yet I'm, I'm designing this stuff? Well, I was totally uh, sort of, you know, living in the moment on that when I was asked to do it. Because I'm a guy that, as you probably know, I love history. I'm a, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker of many generations. And so the opportunity to, uh, to create the visual identity for Brooklyn's first professional sports team since the Dodgers left was really just, you know, something I was really going to sink my teeth into. And it's still one of my favorites. Uh, it amazes me that 20 years later, the the logo was still around because it's unusual. And, uh, you know, again, it was, it was just what an awesome thing to be involved with. I made the mistake and went down the rabbit hole that is your website. And inc- <laughs> no, incredible is not the word because, Todd, I'm going to be honest with you. I love reading. And on my podcast, I have on different celebrities, athletes, and a lot of authors. I'm a big reader. I try to read a book a week. So when I got your book, I'm like, oh, this guy, Todd, 
wrote a book. I want to have him on. So before I even look you up, and then I go on your site and I'm reading about the 12 ball caps, 12 stories. I just finished reading the Yankees hat, uh, the fascinating stuff about the history. You're more than just an author and a graphic designer. You tell great stories. What don't you do, Todd? <laughs> I appreciate that, Mike. That's exactly what I want to hear. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm uh, acting, maybe. Maybe <laughs> acting. You know, podcasts are all good. But you bring up something really important. And, you know, I kind of like, you know, making making pretty pictures is awesome. Um, but being a, uh, a communicator who can use visuals and words, you know, sometimes separately, sometimes together, I don't know that it's necessarily a really... Um, unusual defined niche for me but i like pivoting back and forth between the two see there's so much i want to talk to you about but i want to talk with your i guess your newest book fabric of the game the stories behind nhl's names logos and uniforms i just finished it up maybe like a few weeks ago i loved it obviously you have a love affair with uniforms and designs and logos did you know you wanted to follow up and do a hockey book right after winning ugly about your bizarre baseball uniforms was that just the next step for you well the the uh the project really came about because chris creamer my co-author, uh, who runs sportslogos.net, he and I had talked for a couple of years about collaborating on something. So it was this real kind of blue sky discussion, right? So what's it going to be? And then, you know, it had to be something about, you know, logos and uniforms and, and certainly, you know, the names of teams, how these teams got their names was a great way to kind of round all that out. Uh, Chris is Canadian. He's based up in Toronto. And we kind of just came to the mutual conclusion that exploring the, the history of all this stuff in the NHL is kind of a, a cool and maybe for me a little bit of a different thing. So, uh, you know, we, we talked about other sports, but all roads led to hockey. Well, that was actually my next question. Is hockey your baby? Because I know on your site it's a lot of baseball, basketball. Is hockey your baby? Not really, Mike. Uh, I mean, I will say that, you know, there was a time in my life, uh, you know, especially in college, I lived at the Sloan House YMCA at uh, 356 West 34th Street two years when I was in college. Mm -hmm. So that's a block in back of the garden. And in those days, I would go to a lot of Rangers games. And you could, you know, you could wait until the, the second period was underway and scalp a cheap ticket as a college student. Um, and, you know, there was so uh, what I'm trying to say is there was a time in my life that I was a pretty big hockey fan. And it's not that I necessarily fell out of love with it, but it, it lost my attention for a long time. So to swing back into it with Fabric of the Game was kind of a, a cool, timely, natural thing, I suppose. But to answer your question, I guess gun to my head, I've always been uh, you know, known for my baseball work and have been a baseball guy. Baseball is different you know, as a sports fan. Somebody very wise once said, you know, if you're a baseball fan, you're kind of, you know, it's like a marriage. you got to work on it every day. It's a long season. If you're a football fan, maybe it's kind of like having an affair. You can sneak off for a weekend and disappear from life. <laughs> so, uh, you know, baseball is just always here, and it's great to have it back this time of year. It always feels good. Were you always a uniform guy, like always checking it out growing up? Obviously, you're into designs. What's college you went to? Are you always Were you always into the designs of uniforms? Yes. And it was one of those, you know, strange things that I always say, like, you know, as a kid, uh, I kind of like, you know, was not a great athlete, uh, but uh, was was interested in sports. And I found myself being, you know, an artist uh, via my DNA, kind of like observing the visual culture of sports. 
in a way that was not necessarily easy to do back then. It was, you know, years before the internet, decades before the internet. And so observing sports uniforms meant, you know, watching a game on TV, reading the local papers, and maybe like even, you know, turning on a game, uh, you know, and, and uh, the, the beginning of the baseball season, for instance, and really taking note of the Cub, of the fact that maybe the Cubs have different uniforms or the Pirates have different uniforms or, you know, this team is wearing a different sleeve patch this year. No, no. Let me actually, we're going to jump right to baseball then. What do you think? One baseball question, because I want to talk about your hockey book, but one baseball question. What do you think about the Red Sox Patriots um, uniform coming out? The marathon blue and yellow. Are you a fan of it? Does it just go against everything that's the Red Sox, or do you understand why they're doing it? Can I say that uh, both both of these things can be true, Mike? Very true, very true. <laughs> so, you know, here's what I say. I say, you know, I am uh, a guy my age uh, who, you know, has preconceived notions about the Red Sox. Blah, 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 blah. I don't like them. But then I say to myself, <laughs> okay, I'm not the customer they're trying to reach. So I understand why they are trying to do it. I think actually it's a pretty brilliant piece of guerrilla marketing if you're Nike, because as some people have pointed out, Adidas owns the rights to the Boston Marathon. So talk about a backdoor way to. Oh, uh, wow. I didn't know that. Yep, absolutely. And uh, as Casey Stingle said, you could look it up. (laughs) So, you know, the Red Sox are going to be out there in yellow and blue looking like the uh, the, like UCLA and. you know, ultimately, all 30 MLB clubs are going to get uh, the the city, you know, City Connect slash NBA equivalent of City con- uh, Edition treatment. And we'll see what happens. It's great because the article comes out and I'm looking I'm like, OK, it, it, you know, it's just visually it's wrong. It's the Red Sox. That's not the Red Sox. I see the 617 on the sleeve, the area coded Fenway. I'm like, I dig that. And the bottom line, Todd, of course these uniforms will be on sale at MLB.com. Like, I'm like, oh, of course. Like, obviously, that's the reason they're doing it. But I'm like, oh, it's so weird for the Red Sox. I get the commemoration, but the yellow and blue, you said it's the Bruins. That's not the Red Sox. (laughs) Yeah, and and it's a strange thing too, Mike. But, you know, listen, I mean, um, I do always say that, again, here, here too, the baseball season is so long. It's 162 games. It stretches out from spring until almost winter and you know you got a little more a lot more space here for some maybe what i would call visual expression uh now if they trot those out there 25 30 games a year i really start to question the strategy because you start to chip away at who the red Sox are and your brand um and in a sense that's kind of what what's happened in the nba i mean there are nights that i i rant about this all the time you know, and I'll, I'll look at some highlights and I'll see two teams playing. And I have no idea what teams these are. It's funny you said that the Hawks, I believe, played. And they were wearing the MLK jerseys. I honestly didn't even put two and two together. I saw MLK and it was like a yellowish gold. I'm like, I don't even know who that is. I didn't know who yeah. was playing until they said Trey Young. I'm like, wow, that's, I get the selling of it, but are they really selling many of those? Those jerseys are just ugly. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, listen, aesthetics are always uh, a very subjective thing. So there are people who are loving these Red Sox yellow and blue uniforms, for instance, in a way that I cannot. But having said that, too, you know, part of the NBA issue for me is the fact that there are no more uh, designated home and road looks, mm-hmm. right? So I'll be looking at a, at a you know, a, a, a brief a snippet of a game you know, on Twitter or wherever, and I'll see the Boston Celtics in black at home <laughs> against the Milwaukee Bucks in, you know, what name it blue or whatever, you know, 
it's not the Celtics in white at green, mm-hmm. uh, wearing green versus the Bucks on the road in green. You know, there's no more familiarity. And uh, it's it's strange. It kind of throws me off. And I do think that you know, part of and here's part of the guy in me who's interested in sports and sports history. Um, these things represented a moment and always represent a, a moment in time. And when you lose that, you're losing something kind of important, I think. You nailed it perfectly because look at us. Like We'll go back and watch an old, like you said, Celtics-Laker game. Right away, you see the jerseys. You know the game. You see Bird, McHale, Magic. In 15 years from now, when they put a highlight on, like real, like the jerseys for me, and I know it's us being the salty yeah. guys, like, oh, let's bunt it with a man on second. We're those guys. But it's like, for me, it just throws off the highlights of it. It sounds so silly, though. No, I mean, it's sort of like core to, you know, listen, and, and all I said also, it might be okay for some franchises a little bit more than others. I'm really trying to be uh, trying to be open-minded with just about everything in life. And, you know, I, I think that if you were the, uh, I don't know, you know, name, name an NBA team that has, you know, if you're the Raptors, you can have, you know, six different uniforms and they're a fairly young franchise in the scheme of things, right? Um, and there are some teams that do it really well. A good example uh, that I would point out in the NBA would be the Hornets. Uh, the Hornets have these kind of minty green uh, alternate uniforms, which I think are really pretty sharp. And But here's the thing, uh, the lettering on them and just the overall vibe, they still look like the Hornets. It's not coming out of absolute nowhere to me. So I think it supports the the, the franchise. It pulls the, the whole the whole enterprise north. I agree with that 100%. Now, we talked about Todd, the graphic design uniform guy. Now, we'll talk about the author. Write in a book like this, Todd, with a partner. Do you split it up with teams? Do you each pick a format like that? Any difficulties writing this with a partner? Yeah, it was interesting. We didn't necessarily have a roadmap for this. So when we um, sat down and, and did sort of you know blueprint the thing out, uh, we literally drew up a, a Google sheet online and uh, assigned to each other uh, teams. So, you know, sometimes they made sense. Sometimes they made no sense at all. So an example of that would be uh, Chris is from uh, his uh, Toronto guy. He is a big Maple Leafs fan. Of course, he had had a handle. <laughs> the the Toronto Maple Leafs chapter. Right. And he did likewise with a number of Canadian teams. I really wanted to learn about some really weird, obscure teams that, you know, haven't existed for 80 years. So I took some teams like the Philadelphia Quakers, for instance, who existed for one season, 1929, 1930, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did the uh, Rangers, the Islanders, and the Devils. And, you know, we kind of got down, you know, as we kept moving through these, we got down toward the uh, – you know, the missing pieces and divvied them up. But um, it was a great collaborative effort. And it was really weird, I have to say, because it was not the way that we envisioned it playing out because of the pandemic, the border being closed, uh, still being the case. But um, we made it work. The only sport, Todd, I don't follow, and I mean live and die with, is hockey. I'll watch it in the playoffs, and that's it. It's the only sport that I can't talk about. The 1932 World Series, I just have no interest really in hockey. But I picked up this book, and you did such a great job that I loved it. And that just shows it because I'm not a hockey guy. It's like if I read a music book, I'm not a music guy. Was it difficult writing this book, limiting um, it to four or five pages? Because like you said, the Rangers, the Maple Leafs, the Blackhawks, they have a extensive history. And then you go to a team like the Golden Seals from California. 
Was it difficult limiting these legendary franchises to only a few pages? Mike, you you nailed it, my friend, because this was, yeah, I mean, so if we say that every team in the history of the National Hockey League deserves, you know, some presence here, and you've got to populate two pages with the Montreal Wanderers who played <laughs> a handful of games in the NHL's first season before their arena burned to the ground and they went out of business, and stack that up against, you know, uh, the, the Canadians or, you know, the Maple Leafs, to your point, and not having them be just incredibly imbalanced. It was a challenge. It absolutely was a challenge. And we were very conscious of uh, how to make this work. Um, and I think we did make it work. And, and I appreciate you saying what you did. Um, and I think it, it, it probably, to me, points out the fact that, you know, you said right off the top you were a, a reader. And uh, for those of us who are readers and hopefully intellectually curious people, we're going to get stuff out of things that we might not be naturally drawn to. We as fans care about the jerseys. If you're a Red Sox fan, like my partner at work is a Red Sox fan. He hates these jerseys. If the Yankees ever did something crazy, I would be furious with it. Do the players care? Do the players care about the black jersey, the alternate jerseys, the, the silly Phoenix Coyote logo? Do they care about it at all? Yeah, I think, yeah, well, I mean, you know, you can't speak for everybody, but uh, I've certainly, you know, encountered enough athletes who do care about it. Uh, and particularly, you know, right now, you know, let's face it, if you are a, uh, a, a an in-your-prime professional athlete, uh, you're probably a guy of, you know, or in the case of the WNBA, a woman of, uh, you know, 26 to 30, somewhere in there. And your sensibilities are going to be forged by, uh, you know, like like any of us, the uniforms you grew up with, right? So a good example of this, and I think it does um, translate over to athletes aside from just consumers in general. You know, I always say I'm I'm a being my age. I'm a I'm a child of the '70s. I love all you know crazy looks that I grew up with. I wrote a book about that. <laughs> so uh you know i think if you are a 30 year old athlete right now uh you're going to be loving the looks of the 90s so you know some of those things that you're talking about with arizona for instance you know uh remember the arizona coyotes is probably going to gravitate toward i'll tell you what i loved so much about this when i'm reading this book i got it on kindle and i'm usually a hardcover regular kind of book guy i got it on kindle and i don't know if you heard this from anybody else when you're on the kindle obviously it's a computerized you know it's high def it made the jerseys pop, and I just loved looking at it, and it must be different in the book. Did you get hear anything about that, reading on a Kindle where you can zoom in on the colors and stuff? No, it's actually very interesting you say that. I am an e-reader for you know for book books, right, for, for text, books with text. Uh, I read on my iPad, and you know one of the reasons I love that is because you know under normal circumstances, I'll do a lot of traveling, and I love the fact that you know I could be on a plane, and I've got you know, 40 books sitting in my, if not more, <laughs> right? Like right on my lap. So, uh, you know, to me, Fabric of the Game is, you know, one of these very tactile experiences that you leaf through. And I probably might come at, you know, uh, this from a little, you know, from a different angle because of the fact that I created these uniform illustrations mm -hmm. uh, on an iPad, drew them out, and I designed the book, of course, on a on a, a laptop. So I, I have the digital experience of, of of creating this book, but in terms of reading at it and feeling it and picking the book itself up as an object, it's a little bit of a different thing for me. 
the history of the team, where the team name came from, their achievements, all that stuff. There was a lot of movement, a lot of expansion and stuff. Let me ask you, what cities you think deserve a team and any teams on the horizons of getting one in the NHL? Yeah, I mean, I think right now uh, you've got a couple of prime candidates and uh, I will name a few. And I'm going to start by naming one that probably cannot get a team right now. And that would be Hartford, who <laughs> lost the Whalers, of course, in 1997. And it's like, you know, it's it's it's, you know, they're they're they're. Logo and uniforms live on in the public consciousness because of their just absolute awesomeness. But as a city, Hartford squeezed between Boston and New York, not a huge corporate market to, you know, draw season tickets from. It's no different than it was then. It's probably even worse. Then there are uh, cities like uh, Kansas City, right? Kansas City has a beautiful arena uh, waiting for an NHL team. The Islanders contemplated a shift there. Who knows? They could, you know, it's a market that could certainly support it. Uh, Quebec City built an arena mm-hmm. on spec to replace the Nordiques. Nothing. They got nothing. They got passed up for expansion with Vegas and then Seattle. So, you know, there are some worthy candidates out there. But, uh, you know, you wonder with the uh, with the pandemic, uh, you know, I think it's going to hasten expansion in some leagues. I don't know about the NHL. But you're going you're gonna to see new teams coming on board to make up for lost money for sure. How funny is it that so many horrible jerseys, we can say horrible because they're always voted top 10 worst, the Islanders Fisherman jerseys, uh, jerseys the Coyotes, <laughs> the Striped Canadians, they're now wanted, they're now worn. You get sites like Mitchell Ness and Ebbets Flannels. And those are like the hot sellers, like the old Denver Nuggets with the Rainbow Mountain. I love it at the time. I don't know if people love it. Do you find it ironic that these quote-unquote horrible jerseys people dig now? Well, I, I think there's a reason for it, and that is that they are, you know, uh, good, bad, otherwise they are experimental and sort of almost organic. You could tell that the Denver Nuggets uh, rainbow look from the 80s, for instance, this was not designed by focus groups or committees, um, and there's something endearing about it, right? Um, you know, and as far as the 90s stuff goes, uh, having been, you know, working in sports at that time, um, you know, that was really all about technology changing, how we started to create this stuff on, on the computer, as opposed to drawing it all by hand, made for more complicated logos, logos with more outlines, logos with more colors, crazy experiments uh, in terms of the uniforms themselves. So again, there's something refreshingly weird and wonderful and organic about them. You mentioned early on, like, especially in the book, how teams got their names. The best name, in my opinion, that was missed an opportunity was the Florida Panthers. Not naming their team the Florida Freeze, which was up there in contention. I love that name. When I read it, I'm like, that is the biggest missed opportunity. For some reason, that just popped for me, and I loved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, part of part of the uh, part of part of the you know among many great things that I learned uh, while working on the book. The near misses, right? The weird things that might have been. And that's one of them. And, and you know, we can contemplate. I mean, it's, it's kind of like hard to uh, hard to figure. You know, the Florida Panthers have been around for a while now, right? So it's hard to imagine them as anything else. And there are times that teams will change their names, not only when they move. Uh, you know, it's unusual, but, um, but it does happen. And uh, it makes you think and, and you know, Many of these teams were named uh, via contests, 
And some of the names of, you know, especially from uh, the potential names of teams from the 90s, look at the Nashville section would be a good example of that. There are some cringeworthy <laughs> names that almost got in there that uh, these teams maybe dodged a bullet by uh, getting it right at the end of the day. When a team makes a drastic change, like let's use the Kings for an example, going from the iconic silver and black like the Raiders to go to the purple and gold, is that just solely for marketing purposes? Yeah, well, I mean, generally speaking, teams will change a look for uh, one of several very defined reasons. Uh, a To break a, an era of, of losing, let's say, would be one of them. Uh, you know, where maybe they need to juice up uh, some interest in the team. Another one would be a change in ownership. Uh, a billionaire comes in, purchases a professional franchise, and wants to impart their stink on it, hook, line, and sinker. And that happens all the time. And the third would be just a natural, uh, maybe going into a, a new ballpark or, or arena. But, you know, the case of the Kings, I think, is a really, really interesting one. Uh, they started out life in 1967 in uh, Forum Blue, which is really purple and gold, same colors as the Lakers. So there's this kind of like marketing synergy there. And then, you know, the the early 90s, they go to uh, the Raiders. White Sox did this, too, with black and silver. Very, very, you know, very contrived in a certain way. And there's a lot of stuff to unpack in that decision for these franchises gang culture right mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. west coast rap all kinds of stuff have having nothing to do with you know with ice hockey or in the case of the white Sox, baseball in chicago but um but they were both hits right out of the gate it's funny after you would write about like after i read a chapter i'd go and look at your pages on the kindle i'd zoom in the team i had the most appreciation for was the Minnesota Wild. The the North Star, the setting sun, the river in the mouth, the trees making the outline of the animal head, the great colors. That one blew me away. I, I can't stop looking at that picture of the Minnesota Wild. Did any pictures or logos for you like, oh, wow, what? I know you had a, a passion for the Flames. You guys spoke very highly of the Flames. Any teams really like you have more appreciation for now? Yeah, well, I think in the case of the Wild, you bring up something uh, that I've talked about for a long time, you know, because I think, as a designer, I'll just put on a different hat for a second. You know, if I'm being tasked to create a, uh, a visual identity for a team called the wild, I don't know where to start because what is a wild, right? <laughs> it, it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to uh, easy uh, depiction necessarily, but, um, but that is a beautiful, highly underrated logo. And I think that they got it right. And here we are 20 years after they were formed and, you know, it 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 does uh, it it's got a lot going on, but it tells a lot. It it it, uh, it definitely packs a wallop. Let's put it that way. Um, some other teams that I really uh, appreciated coming out of the book. You know, I, I'm a classicist in a lot of ways, so I'm going to be drawn to the Red Wings of the world, just one color. Same with the Maple Leafs, the history behind the Canadians. You know, I mean, th those are those are easy ones. Um, but uh, some of the weird ones in there, you know, the, the Oilers would be, a, I think, a pretty good example. This is a franchise that uh, has had the same logo since day one. They tweaked their colors. They made them darker, you know, along the way, that kind of thing. And it's very 70s looking. But, boy, you look at that, and this is a franchise that was a dynasty at one time. And the great one, the greatest hockey player of all time, time uh, Wayne Gretzky, played for them. So I have a real deep appreciation for what the Oilers look like. 
leave on that design hat. This might sound silly and obvious. Obviously, you're insanely talented. You're very popular. How do you get into that field of work? I'm always curious when people have a profession that's not the not a normal profession. How do you get into the field of work of designing logos? Oh, it, it was, in my case, kind of right place, right time. So uh, as I said earlier, I'm a guy that, you know, always looked at sports through maybe a little bit of a different prism. Um, went to college at School of Visual Arts in New York. Um, and anyway, uh, you know, when I got into what, you know, what we would consider sports design, it was nothing. And this was the early 1990s, uh, you know, before the Internet really existed, uh, before logos just, you know, took flight into places that we couldn't have imagined then. And there were probably, literally, Mike, you know, less than 10 people working in sports design at that time. So uh, long, long, long story short, I was working in book publishing, uh, designing book covers coming out of college. I was doing hand lettering. I was working with uh, advertising agencies. And I, you know, at this time, uh, the NBA, uh, NHL and Major League Baseball in particular were um, opening up and uh you know, really starting to um, sort of professionalize their in-house uh, creative services departments. So I got wind of this and I literally dropped my portfolio off. A portfolio back in those days was literally a box with printed <laughs> examples of your work. Uh, and I dropped my my portfolio off with Major League Baseball and uh, who had an interest in um in me working with them on a freelance basis. And that was 1991. It's 30 years ago. You designed a logo for the Super Bowl. How does that process go about? Do you all, do people just submit entries? And how'd you get the call that you won? Because when I Googled you on Wikipedia and Todd, you know, everything on the internet's true. So when I read it, I'm <laughs> like, how, how do you get that call? That's like getting drafted. Like, how, how does that whole process work? Yeah, it was crazy. Of course, you know, any football fan is going to know that the Super Bowl logo now, year over year, looks pretty much the same. There's a standardized look that embraces the Lombardi Trophy. But, Mike, once upon a time, once upon a time, <laughs> there was a golden era in which the Super Bowl logo each and every year was different and colorful. And it reflected the, uh, the, the location that the game was being played. So uh, I had started to do uh, some work with the NFL. I started with my, you know. First jobs working in pro sports were with Major League Baseball, then on to the NBA, then with licensees, business partners, basketball Hall of Fame, stuff like that. But um, the NFL contacted me, uh, you know, total loss for the year, somewhere around 2000. I started doing some smaller jobs and um, I was asked by them to take a crack uh, at Super Bowl 38. Um, I think they had some other designers in the mix as well, kind of a, what we would call a bake off, which is typical for a huge project like that. And, uh, anyway, my work emerged victorious and, you know, Super Bowl is something I'm really proud of because it's the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> how they call you and tell you they won, that you won. How'd that happen? I totally remember it. It was a, uh, a, uh, the art director there at the time, uh, it was based in Los Angeles, a guy named Brad Jansen. Uh, managed the process and, you know, just terrific communicator. Kept me, you know, kept me on board every step of the way, a lot of revisions. And I do remember him calling me and saying, listen, I think yours is going to be the one. So just get ready and get ready to take this to finish 
so that we could get a press release out, you know, ASAP. Um, and sure enough, uh, you know, made the final round of tweaks to the logo and what it would eventually be. Uh, and I absolutely remember my, I, I have a daughter who is now 23 and I remember being, uh, being at the, at the, uh, boys and girls club watching her do swim practice and I get a, an email uh, or it's actually a phone call because, you know, this is long before, you know, it's a few <laughs> years before iPhones. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and it was a congratulatory call uh, that, yes, you're the one and get home. And there is a press release and uh, I'm part of history, which is really cool. You design tickets also. Does it bother you that gradually the paper tickets going away? It kills me. It kills me. I was at my mom's house um, down the Jersey Shore last week. Oh, for Easter. And there was, I had a box of all the ticket stubs I was at, all the games. And I'm looking up the box scores. Does it bother you that that's kind of fading away? It kills me. Yes. You put it perfectly. <laughs> totally. I'm, I'm a freak with saving ticket stubs. I always have been. I have ticket stubs, Mike, dating back to the 1970s to when I was a kid. And there came a point maybe, I don't know, 20 years ago that I had them all in a shoebox or something like that. And I decided to, all right, you know, like uh, I, I got like binders, just like two binders and plastic sleeves, like baseball card sleeves. And I put them in. And then, you know, anytime I would go to a ball game or, you know, a concert, let's say, I would open that thing up and put the ticket in there. And now I'll pull that thing open and I think of, I don't know. I think of people I went to games with. I think of mm -hmm. great days. And, you know, some of these people aren't with me anymore, uh, which is sad. But, you know, these little pieces of paper contain a lot of memories. And um, looking at a screenshot of a barcode or a QR code or something on my phone is just not the same. I was on your Instagram and you had a ton of ticket stubs. That's what made me bring it up. Let me ask you, what's one sporting event you wish you could have witnessed live? Babe Ruth's called shot in the 1932 World Series. Todd, that is oh, I swear on my wife on every, that is my answer. Every I'm obsessed with Ruth. That's my answer when I whenever I have any athlete on. Like, hey, what's one sporting event? And you know, they a million great answers, and the Ruth 32 one is always my answer. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I mean, for me, and you know, there was no hesitation. I, I think it was a couple of things. Number one, maybe you could debunk a myth. Uh, uh, -huh, uh -huh. you know, because there's been all kinds of discussion about this, as you well know, right? The World Series itself was not a great World Series. It was a sweep, if I'm remembering mm -hmm. correctly. So it's not like it was a pivotal game or, you know, franchise changing event. But the, the sauce that Babe Ruth seemingly exhibited by calling a shot in the 1932 World Series to be there at that time and just thinking about being at Wrigley Field in 1932, Al Capone, <laughs> and, you know, all of it, right? I mean, it's just like there's a lot of flavor there, too. I'm so happy. You made my day by giving me your yeah, answer. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Yes, sir. Two more things. On your site, uh, I'll spell Todd, R-A-D-O-M.com. You have the legacy work. So many designs stand out. The NBA All-Star Game in Phoenix, you know, in 09 with the sun, the cactus. I'm geeking out now. The winter meetings, the Brooklyn Cyclones. Corny question, and I hate this because I love traveling, so I hate when people say, what's your favorite country? But any yeah. of those designs, any of those your baby, like, that's mine. Like, do you have just a special appreciation for just one of them? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I love travel myself, and, you know, every trip is special, and they're all different. 
And, and, you know, the same would apply to these things. But I got a couple that would stand out, and we've talked about a couple. Of them. Uh, I do love the Cyclones for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. Uh, you know, the Super Bowl is a special thing because it's like, you know, navigating this, this Byzantine process and being part of something really, really, really big. And then there are some, you know, some offbeat ones. Um, the final season logo for Shea Stadium, for instance, first place I ever saw a major league game. So to be able to work on the final year logo was cool. Same thing for Yankee Stadium. Um, they're all different. They're all cool. Some are more cool than others. But you know, they add up. They say that uh, perfect is the enemy of good. Like when people want something so perfect, how do you know what these designs, how do you know, okay, I'm finished with it. How do you know when it's good Yeah, you, you can, you know, somebody, you know, designers, and I know this, you know, for a fact, there is no, uh, and writing is the same way, quite honestly. Um, there's no, there's a starting line, but we don't know how to get to the finish line. It could be a meandering path. So often, Mike, uh, I will, you know, take things and take them way too far and bring them back. And uh, you're right. Perfect is the enemy of good. You know, too many notes, too many, you know, too, too, too many notes is bad in music. Uh, too, too, you know, too many ingredients can spoil a great meal. Somehow, you know, uh, and you do need to kind of push it all over that line and pull it back, put it off to the side and maybe devolve it a little bit. And I think it's it's important to point out that now more than ever, that's really important because the 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 work the work is used in so many places that are both big and small, and you know it's got to look good as a favicon. Um, you know, it's all important. I kept you on for almost forty minutes. Let's finish up with this. How about the coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Uh, I've got a lot of cool stuff. Um, you know, and some of which would be really just like individually meaningful to me that might not mean anything to anyone so i'm going to name two things one of which is uh i have a collection of bricks from major league stadiums right oh that's <laughs> see that's that's different i love that because that's so different yeah and, and like so and they're all the same size more or less so i've got a brick from fenway park and a brick from wrigley field and a brick from cleveland municipal stadium in baltimore and I look at those things and I think about uh, just the millions of people who touched these things or passed by and, you know, saw saw events, concerts, sporting events. And I just think they're all cool because they hang together. Uh, and then one other cool thing that I have uh, is a uh, – I, I have – uh, and and the rest are just not as weird or wonderful. <laughs> and Todd, just give the plug where everyone can find you on the Twitter, on Instagram, your awesome site and everything. I appreciate it, Mike, and I appreciate talking with you. So, uh, ToddRadom.com, T-O-D-D-R-A-D-O-M.com. That's my website. Hit me up on Twitter and on Instagram, at Todd Radom. Again, T-O-D-D-R-A-D-O-M. Um, easy to find out there. And you found me, and I'm glad you did because it's been a, a really fun, quick, quick conversation. Todd, this was a blast, my friend. Stay good and get to the city. We'll have some beers at Jack Dempsey's, my friend. Oh, I can't wait. See you later, my friend. All right. Thanks. That was great. Bye-bye. Thank you.